Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah F. Jecker. And I'm Oliver Brady. And this is a, a podcast where we watch movies and TV, and maybe we might read some books at some stage if I learn how, uh, that depict a medieval world. <laughs> and we're going to look at both historical fiction and then we're going to look at medieval-esque fantasy, which is where we're kind of going with today's episode. Uh, in so much as we don't technically get into the medieval period, but... It's just a really fun movie, and I kind of convinced Sarah to let me do it. Now, the reason I had to convince Sarah is because she's the expert on the podcast. Sarah, why are you an expert in medieval, uh, well, medieval time period, we'll say? Uh, I have a PhD in medieval history, which is, I think, the kind of official form of expertise one can have in medieval history. Um, my PhD is focused on medieval, but my teaching tends to extend into early modern, which is what uh, our movie for today would technically fall under. So, yeah. So that's why it wasn't too hard to convince you. Yes. So, yeah, given that the vagaries of academia mean you pretty much have to teach everything from, well, I've taught biblical material and definitely have to teach early modern. So, uh, yeah, we can we can count this. Well, I teach in an Irish Catholic school, so I've definitely had to teach some biblical stuff in my time. Um, I think that was a huge mistake. My school learned very quickly not to put the physics teacher in charge of a religion class, but that's a different (laughs) thing altogether. Sarah, what was it that led you to want to do this podcast in the first place? So as I said, I'm a medievalist and I teach medieval history, and I am really interested in how people think about the Middle Ages, people who are not medieval historians. Um, And in particular, because I teach this, I'm very used to my students coming in with ideas about the Middle Ages that come from uh, medieval movies or books or TV shows so that they come in and they think like, yeah, we're going to get just a lot of violence because that's what they're seeing in these movies. So and what we're going to do and by we, I mean, Sarah's going to do and I'm going to sit here and learn is we're going to talk about what the movies get right, we're going to talk about what they get wrong, and they're going to talk about what that tells us about how people in our time think about the medieval past. And then, of course, we're going to have certain things that we always want to hit on. Number one, medieval period was clearly very violent. Um, Number two, if you were a peasant, it sucked. Number three, there were roving bands of bandits everywhere. Constantly. And number four, as we all know, prima nocta was definitely a thing. And no matter how many times Sarah tells me it wasn't, it was definitely a thing. Amazing. Nearly every word in that sentence was wrong. (laughs) My really solid Luke Skywalker impression. (laughs) Uh, Well, sorry, that's Last Jedi, Luke Skywalker. We don't like to talk about him. Um, God, I hate those people. (laughs) But that's beside the point. Um, We do not criticize The Last Jedi in this podcast. uh, We will not. Although I will say one thing I did see uh, in a Facebook post the other day. Um, that's Sarah If Decker, that's my ever lovely co-host. Um, she thinks that the original prequel uh, from the Star Wars trilogy are three better overall movies than the three Hobbit movies. Yeah. Um, she definitely clicked on this. She definitely said this was okay. But I know a small fact about Sarah If Decker, and that is that she hasn't seen the second two of the Hobbit movies. I actually have seen the first two. I remembered I watched the second on a plane. 
I have not seen the <laughs> so third. You really seen it? Um, I have not seen the third, so I'll admit that that was a slight stretch. But on the other hand, I hated the first two so much I didn't see the third, and I have seen the prequels multiple times, which is probably a strange choice on my part. But be that as it may. <laughs> but we're not talking about the prequels today. Although we are talking about a movie that's got three. In the title, and there are three of both of those movies, uh, both of those sets of movies, are kind of like trilogies. Segway. We're talking about 1993's. Huh? It's coming back. <laughs> the Three Musketeers, yes, starring starring Charlie Sheen as Aramis, um, Kiefer Sutherland, or Jack Bauer, as I'm going to refer to him for the entirety of this podcast. And anytime he shows up in any of the movies we talk about, we'll be talking about. Jack Bauer. Uh, he plays Athos. Uh, Oliver Platt. Um, this is a 1993 Oliver Platt, so apparently he was adorable at the time. So he's playing Portos. He's very adorable. And, uh, he's very adorable. And very charismatic. And we have, he's, we have Chris O'Donnell as D'Artagnan. And Sarah's written a little note for me here, which says that you've never seen him in anything? No. So I literally, I went through his entire filmography because I was like, I must have seen this guy in another movie, right? I have not. He has been in other movies, but definitely not any I have seen. And I think I also wrote down in my notes a slightly sarcastic, I wonder why, because I thought he was a <laughs> terrible actor. He is very pretty. He's very pretty. He has very nice curls. I'm a little jealous. He does have nice curls. He reminds me of the Fast and the Furious Brian. What's his name? Brian O'Connor, a.k.a. Copy McCopperson. Copy And he looks a little bit like him with his little blondie curls. And he's a very handsome man. Um, he went on to do an NCIS show with LL Cool J. That must be nice for him. Yeah, I'm sure good, it's really successful. Good, good for him. But what I think is very funny is that he's higher build in this movie than the next two actors. Really? Who are Tim Curry as Cardinal Richelieu. And Rebecca de Mornay as Milady de Winter. Rebecca de Mornay, who is fabulously attractive. She is. Um, and Tim Curry is just fabulously snarky. He is my favorite person. I, I think Tim Curry is constantly doing um, a Jack Nicholson Joker impression. He's one step away from saying, wait till you get a load of me. Only in Tim Curry voice. He pretty much is. I mean, he's just so incredibly like campy cartoon villain. And he is really pulling it off. And I love it. One less mouth to feed. He he really does. And then we get um, my 1993 crush, uh, the ever lovely and beautiful Gabrielle Anwar as Queen Anne. And, uh, and yeah. young 12-year-old young Ollie, uh, he might have been a little bit in love with Gabrielle Anwar. Well, Gabrielle Enwar, you'll be happy to know, um, is very scantily clad in the Tudors, which I'm sure we'll do for this podcast at some point. And we can talk about the historical travesty that is her character. I cannot wait <laughs> to talk about the historical travesty that is her character. If she's scantily clad, I will avert my gaze from her. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So we're going to get on to our first section, which is where we recap the movie. So this section, as all of our sections have, little Latin names, um, and we still don't have any music, so I'm going to sing this in, uh, and Sarah's going to laugh at me, and then tell me, don't change it, and secretly she's saying, I'm going to hire a choir to replace you, Ollie. So, um, <laughs> The choir's going to be my co-host. 
<laughs> the, the choir can be your co-host. It'd be, oh God, I'm going to end up being a guest on another podcast. <laughs> <after> again. <clears throat> it's time for a numeratio. Innumeratio. <laughs> Sarah, where does the movie start? So we open in the year 1625. So as I said, we are solidly in the early modern age. Now, many people think about the early modern period as one in which there was a great deal of change and where all of a sudden we had the birth of reason and people aren't overly religious and they're rational and nonviolent. This is not what's happening in this movie, thank goodness. Um, instead, we see that the early modern period is, once again, a period with a lot of pretty much pointless violence. So our ostensible hero, D'Artagnan, leaves for Paris to become a musketeer. <laughs> he leaves for Paris because he has just been challenged to a duel by uh, one of the McCann brothers. I'm not sure which McCann it is. Um, the guy who ended up being Doctor Who. So if you know which McCann that was, that's who is playing the character who but... challenges D'Artagnan to a duel. And D'Artagnan then, of course, ends up being a complete douche to him. He's meant to be our hero and he gets to say choice lines like, she wanted something to remember me by and give my regards to your sister. Right. The guy like, had challenged him to a duel because D'Artagnan had, I suppose, in the lingo of the time, deflowered his sister. And there was general displeasure surrounding that fact. And uh, it's not like D'Artagnan seems to have really especially cared about this woman. And I hope that she was aware of that before he took off she wanted to give me something to remember her by yeah he is an absolute twat and at this point this is where we got our first uh, hashtag let him die of the movie i think this might be the fastest we've ever had yep, within our protagonist. 10 minutes um is within the first 10 minutes <laughs> and he's meant to be our main character yep <laughs> not good Oh, no, so at this point, I am now rooting for our villains because I hate D'Artagnan. So <laughs> we now have our villains, uh, Captain Roquefort, who is of the uh, personal guard of Cardinal Richelieu, the king's chief minister. So uh, at Richelieu's orders, Roquefort formally disbands the musketeers. But, of course, three of the musketeers refuse to give up their uniforms and their cool swords um, and take off. This is Roquefort that I've been mispronouncing as Rochefort for my entire life. And I have no doubt that I am mispronouncing it. Oh, because wait. Sarah's pronouncing Shoot, it I actually might be doing a Catalan, a Catalan pronunciation by accident. Oh, you show off, Decker. <laughs> I am Every actually, week, because I... it's a metro station in Barcelona, I'm actually doing a Catalan pronunciation, so it is actually oh, Rochefort, I, I believe. I get, I get sucked <laughs> into this every single time. It's like, oh, Sarah's made a little mistake. Oh, it's not a little mistake. I was thinking in a different language. <laughs> ah, so Captain Rochefort. And Captain Rochefort is played by Michael Wincott. Um, and I just want everybody to know, I love Michael Wincott. I think he's an amazing actor and he does snarky, grumpy, angry person very, very good or very, very well. Um, he plays Rochefort in this, and I am 100% certain that in the not-too-distant future, we're going to cover him playing the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yes. Or does he play the Sheriff of Nottingham, or does he play Guy? 
Oh, no, he, you're right. I think he plays Guy, not... He plays uh, Guy. But he, yeah, he not plays Nottingham. One of, yeah, but, oh, yeah, obviously, because um, Hans Gruber is playing the Sheriff of Nottingham. As he so should. he plays Guy, the Gisborne in uh, in Prince of Thieves. Yes. And uh, he's also splendidly awesome in that, too. Um, yeah. I, For those of you who haven't seen this movie... Rochefort, every time Rochefort's on screen, you're just like, yeah, I'm I'm all on board. <laughs> yeah. I want this guy to win everything. And the dynamic between him and Richelieu is ab- and Tim Curry is absolutely amazing. Like, they just really play off each other really well. If I didn't know better, I should have thought you wanted them to riot. It would have given us an excuse to arrest them. Hardly necessary. The musketeers have finished. <laughs> Tim Curry is playing Richelieu and he is smarmy and disgusting and definitely a sex offender in several different ways. Oh, and definitely. Rochefort obviously is doing what he's told, but at the same time, you're definitely thinking to yourself, Rochefort hates this guy. <laughs> yeah, he definitely but hates him. He's the man with the power, so Rochefort knows where his bread is buttered. Um, so Paris... Gets to uh, Paris and <laughs> just outside D'Artagnan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he gets to Paris and just outside Paris, he comes across the Queen, um, who's out riding, and um, she's there with her lady in waiting, uh, Constance, who's played by Julie Dalby. Um, Gabrielle Anwar is, of course, the Queen, and um, he saves them from their two bodyguards, and As then. Really aggressively, kind of hits on Constance. Actually, kind of both in... of them, wasn't it? D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. A Gascon? I've come to Paris to join the Musketeers. Then I'm sure I'll be hearing your name again. Would that please you? Ladies in waiting are forbidden to socialize with Musketeers. Well, I'm not a Musketeer yet. With that kind of courage, you will be one soon enough. Yeah, uh, but then he gets into the city. And then he proceeds to be an idiot. Yeah, so he promptly manages to irritate all three of the musketeers through just generally being a little jerk. And so all three of them challenge him to a duel. Yeah, and the main thing about that there is he's in the wrong in all three of these instances. Oh, definitely. Like, he is genuinely just a giant dick at this point. And he, the, like the three musketeers all like either challenge him or I think, in fact, accept a challenge from him. At least a couple. Rather than challenge him. Yeah. They're accepting the challenge because he's a douche. But the first one that he's going to fight is... Athos is Kiefer Sutherland and Jack Bauer in period costume and this like long haircut is everything I have ever wanted to see and more. It is endlessly entertaining. Yeah. Uh... There are a couple of scenes with Jack Bauer and Rochefort together, and they're just mesmerizingly good. <laughs> they really are. Um, like Sutherland is just oozing charisma in this movie. I, I, it's a weird thing to say because a lot of people I know don't like him, and obviously I'm a a huge fan of Jack Bauer. But um, yeah, he just oozes it from him. and like. Uh, there's a quote here Sarah's written out for me it's like you need a lesson in manners my boy feel free to walk around for souvenirs if you wish I just got here how am I supposed to become a musketeer if they've been disbanded I say you've got quite a problem you're not being very helpful 
You need a lesson in manners, boy. Any time. And like the way he says it and he whispers and everything is this kind of dry, dull whisper. Even later on when he gets a little bit drunk, it's still the same dry, dull whisper. You're like, yes, Kiefer Sutherland is nailing it in this movie. And it's also kind of funny, the dynamic, because uh, both the, like Charlie Sheen as Aramis has a bunch of kind of witty lines and Porthos um, uh, is also very witty, Oliver Platt. And Kiefer Sutherland as Athos just has no chill and is just serious and gruff and angry all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then we get to go back to our, our villains, um, Richelieu being super creepy, um, who's hitting on Anne, uh, the Queen of France. Um, <laughs> Sarah, when we were watching this, I remember you saying to me specifically about these maps that they're looking at, and you're like, Ollie, I think they're, those are real maps in the Vatican. Did you track down and find out if that's if they are? I So I looked at pictures of the maps in the Vatican, and they definitely look very similar, but I couldn't actually find the stills from the Three Musketeers to directly compare them. Um, yeah, but I, I trust Sarah's opinion on this, because I've seen the ones in the Vatican as well, and from what I remember in the movie, they're pretty much bang on what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so I'm, um, I would bet that they're actually reproductions of those maps, which... yeah. I mean, it's kind of a cool idea. I mean, on the other hand, they're like maps on a wall, which is not how you would plan for, you know, a war. Anything. (laughs) Um, With like maps hanging on a wall. But it's kind of a cool touch as things go. Yeah, it does. It is a very impressive scene. Yes. And the castle they're in is amazing. Uh, We also get another great line from Richelieu to Rochefort and anyone who doesn't know about Rochefort he's got one eye so Richelieu's like don't let only one eye impair your vision such a great dynamic because they clearly hate each other but have to work together they they need each other and that's what makes it so good he's becoming as troublesome as his father he's a foolish boy and barely that that foolish boy is about to become a man which is all the more reason for us to act quickly have our loose ends been tied up? Two patrols have been sent. I trust, Captain Rochefort, that you're doing everything in your power to rid us of these rebels. Don't let having only one eye impair your vision. The loss of the other could be most inconvenient. Um, so, they get to the Julian location, which is one of my favorite things in the world, is the ruins outside of town. I am on board for any movie that has ruins outside the city walls. Of course, <laughs> Just, ruins are cool. You name it, if it's got ruins outside the city walls, I am on board with it. I love it. Um, myself and Sarah watched Marilyn, um, the TV show together, and there is a couple <laughs> of scenes in the last season where um, Leon, the greatest of all, the, uh, the knights, um, where Leon and his boys are fighting in ruins just outside of Camelot. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't even care that this isn't something that actually existed. Those ruins are awesome. Yeah. And these ruins outside of France, or outside of, outside of France, yes. Um, <laughs> these ruins outside of Paris are a great place to go have some sword fighting. Um, at this point, you would hope D'Artagnan is going to get a little bit humbled, but then shows up a bunch of the Cardinal's guards. Right. So he shows. So as he shows up, also he realizes for the first time that these three men that he's agreed to duel are members of the Musketeers, and clearly feels a little bad about the fact that he was a giant cock because he really wants to join the Musketeers, um, and they very clearly do not want to invite him. They all get into uh, sword fighting. Um, 
the he's meant to take on uh, them in order, and none of the musketeers can decide who to fight him first. Right. Because they're all very confident that they're going to kill him. And then the others won't um, get their chance. And the others won't get their chance because they all want to teach him some uh, teach him a lesson, which I think is very good. Um, then Rosefort shows up with the Carolus guards and he's like, he looks at D'Artagnan's sword. He clearly recognizes it. And he says, you're an idiot like your father. Idiot like your father. <laughs> and it's yes. so good. Um, he also, I think, says to him, Fool, you never even owned your sword. Um, but <laughs> you never even had your sword. <laughs> you never even had your sword, um, which is very good. Uh, Rochefort, I, I'll tell you, I just everybody just watch the scenes with Rochefort in this movie. There, he's brilliant, amazing, um, and especially and the scenes the with other... Rochefort and Richelieu together. Yes, uh, they're very good together. Um, even the the scenes with Richelieu and Milady the Winter yes. are very good because she has no time for him either, and uh, and it's great. Um, there's a very good sword fight here. There is a very good sword fight. Um, so D'Artagnan um, and the Musketeers are basically four men fighting together against this like pretty large group of guards that uh, Rochefort has brought, and overall actually do fairly well. Um, and it's like a very cool fight scene. It's kind of based. It's kind of on the ruins. They all have very cool looking swords. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, I remember saying to Sarah at the time that I really appreciate this because I've I've read um, Alexander Dumas' uh, Three Musketeers multiple times and all of the sequels that go with them. Um, Aramis is the swordmaster of the group and at no point does Charlie Sheen not fight three dudes. Right, yeah, so they do that very well. Um, because there is, like, the, the idea in the... In the, the book is that none, nobody would be able to take him on one by one which is why he goes off to be a religious man because he feels like he was basically killing people even though he was having one-on-one battles with them and i like the fact that there's a little touch where the movie you know puts him in to fight three dudes and two dudes and four dudes and at one point he's just wandering around the battle or a battle at the end just stabbing dudes over and over again i'm like yeah that's how Aramis should be yeah he's a badass yeah and yeah, I will really have to actually reread the book one of these days. I read it, but I read we, it years ago. We did skip over my favorite scene in the movie. Um, myself and Sarah, when we're watching stuff, have a couple of hashtags that we like to send around. And one of them was kind and was born for this movie. And it is hashtag heave. And <laughs> hashtag heave is when somebody, uh, it's almost always a woman, I think it's been a man a couple of times, but uh, almost always a woman who's been put into an incredibly tight corset or uplifting um, mid-drift area uh, piece of clothing to draw attention to the upper chest area. And it's a heaving bosom, we'll say, is what is the effect. And I am certain that no bosom in history has heaved like the bosom when we're introduced to Aramis as he's I, 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 what is he giving he's giving the the lady in the house um scripture lessons yes she's his student and I believe it's that scene that um uh, you know she says that she's that there he's uh you know so then they start hooking up and so then she says that she's married 
right? Yes. And then the husband and then comes husband in. And so up. then he starts talking about like, oh, we have to beg forgiveness from God. And then the husband comes in and I think he says something like, God is often busy and takes off. <laughs> he uh he is resisting her charms which are very much on display um he's resisting her charms but then finds a passage in the bible which uh i didn't realize at the time but somebody else pointed out to me he opens it to that page instinctively he's clearly done this before uh and the passage in the bible basically says it's okay to give in to your carnal desires <laughs> sometimes it's what god wants you to do and he's like he's referring to her as I think he does he call her my child a couple of times. It's a little creepy. It's it's a little creepy, but at the same time she's clearly the same age as him, so it's not it's not that super creepy. Um but uh yeah, I just think it's very funny. And it'll show up later on where we get a few more hashtag heaves and one or two hashtag attempted heaves. I'm sorry, Gabrielle Anwar. <laughs> you 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 just don't you just don't pack what um Rebecca the Morning does. We will get a lot of them since that is definitely another trope in medieval movies of women being on display as sexual objects. Yes. If they could talk, the movie might almost pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, Julie Delpy and Gabrielle Amour have a couple of conversations, but they're almost exclusively about D'Artagnan or the king. Yeah. I think Richelieu might get a mention there, but yeah, they, they, this movie definitely does not pass the Bechdel test. Although it Mm -hmm. might, we will see eventually pass the itch Decker test. So better, better than some. So we then get introduced to Milady de Winter, who's hanging out with Richelieu and he sends her on a mission to deliver a signed treaty to the Duke of Buckingham. Um, So effectively, what he's doing there is telling the English that they can invade and he's going to make it so that they're not going to defend against them. Right. So that the English he's... are basically going to win and I guess maybe get a bit of territory. And meanwhile, Richelieu has his own thing going on, which we'll find more about later. Super sexy uh, Milady de Winter has some serious snark about her um, where Richelieu is complaining about being a man of the cloth or whatever and she says i don't believe you suffered the burn of chastity i mean he's she says that you know he's complaining and also simultaneously like glit like i don't know staring very just lasciviously at her so it's mm-hmm. uh, uh your beauty would make even the most chaste of men think of impurity i don't believe you suffer the burden of chastity he takes a step towards her, and then I let Sarah do this one because this is a Jewish joke. Yes, and she uh, breaks out a knife and says, "With a flick of my wrist, I could change your religion." So, uh, referring to a uh, surprise circumcision, <laughs> which you know is is always the the main goal. Surprise! <laughs> I just cut off a piece of your penis. Yes, yeah, so this is this is our one reference to Jews in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so. D'Artagnan has been sneaking around um, because he'd been caught by uh, Rochefort and the boys, and he's been sneaking around inside the uh, the ch- uh, inside the palace, trying to find out uh, who Milady de Winter is. And he's overheard this plan, and he goes to sneak off. But mm, what happens there? Rochefort catches him because he's an idiot. Uh, not Rochefort's an idiot. 
D'Artagnan. Yes, Rochefort catches D'Artagnan because D'Artagnan is an idiot, uh, yeah, too. Yeah, Don't want to be confusing him with friends. Yeah, this Rochefort is awesome. Yes. Um, then the Musketeers show up for some reason. They shouldn't. I guess they feel guilty because he technically helped them and they have honor and all that. Ugh. Yeah, so they say. Um, <laughs> so Portos, uh, uh, they all take him and they decide to go and find out where Milady de Winter is going. So I think they're going to Calais. Yes, I believe so, because they must be getting on a boat to go to England, and Calais is the kind of standard place to get on a boat to go to England. They're heading towards there, and Porthos goes, Athos goes, Aramis goes, and we get some bonding between three men and uh, and um, D'Artagnan. Or, to be more accurate, we get some bonding between two of them and D'Artagnan, because Athos doesn't give a shit. He does not. Uh, before that, though, I do want to interject that the chase scene gets some really solid lines from Porthos the Alcoholic, um, mm-hmm. uh, where he, I guess they're actually escaping in Richelieu's kind of like private carriage, which is very, has a very, I guess, well-stocked bar area. And so he, you know, pulls out a you know, bottle and says, you know, champagne. And then one of the others says, we're in the middle of a chase, <laughs> Porthos. And he goes, you're right, something red, and then is actually like drinking a bottle of red wine as they continue their daring escape. <laughs> he's he's very calm. Oliver Platt plays this very well. He's meant to be Portos the pirate, and he's clearly full of crap, but when the shit hits the fan, he's just relaxed and calm about it. Champagne? We're in the middle of a chase, Porthos. You're right. Something red. We then, they managed to escape, even they managed to escape D'Artagnan's friends from earlier have showed up and are chasing them as well, but they managed to get away uh, and we get to more scenes with Richelieu who decides that he wants to just have eminently quotable lines. Yes. So this is, and I'm sure everybody's seen this at some point because you'll get a cut or cut of Tim Curry on um, YouTube with all of his like iconic one-liners, yeah. and two of them are said in this movie, at, in this scene, which is one thousand gold pieces on each of their heads, dead or alive. Oh, I prefer dead. <laughs> he says it like that, and it's so good. All for one, and more, and for more me. for me. He is amazing. <laughs> All for one, and more for me. He is so camp. He's chewing so much scenery and I fucking love it. Just in case uh, people are listening. Yeah, this might be end up being a movie that um, I, I we can't find very many faults in because even though it's gloriously dumb, the gloriousness of it just outweighs the dumbness of it. It is so much fun. There are, however, historical inaccuracies. And one that I would mention that pops up around now is that at some point in one of these scenes, there's a shot of what is uh, clearly supposed to be Paris's cathedral, Notre Dame de Paris. And it does, however, include some statues that are part of a 19th century restoration. So a bit off there. Yeah. Um, and when Sarah said this to me at the time, because you only see it for like two seconds. And Sarah was like, I don't think that's what Notre Dame would have looked like back then. And I was like, damn. Well, one of the statues is green. Looks... <laughs> what, one of the statues <laughs> is green. Yeah, so it is very strange. Um, we, then we get to the bonding scene where... Um, Portos and Aramis are trying to teach D'Artagnan how to flirt and score women because he obviously has had no luck with this, despite the fact the movie starts with him having deflowered the girl. 
Um, God, I hate that phrase. It's a really um, terrible phrase. I used it as the parlance talking. of the time. Mm, it's terrible. Um, but Portos is saying, like, just, you know, basically go up and be sexually aggressive with them. And that's what a woman wants is you to kiss them. Aramis, a man of the cloth, let's not forget. Um, he prays at them. Um, or, I mean, maybe it's meant to be reading poetry, but it definitely has the feeling of praying to them. And somehow this makes them all weak at the knees. And yeah. they go kiss him. I mean, maybe it could be just because it's 1993 Charlie Sheen with a, a little Van Dyke beard. And, um, you know what I'm saying? It was kind of working for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be nice if any of these women had personalities or agency. But, uh, you know, it's 1993. <laughs> I guess they don't need that. Yeah. D'Artagnan's just really bad at flirting. He tries to do the um, poetry trick. It doesn't work. And then he just tries to kiss some girl. But I'm not, I can't, I think, she, I'm not sure he's quite successful. He asks why Athos is hanging out by himself. Now, what Aramis says is he takes his drinking very seriously. But I think myself and Sarah genuinely know the correct reason is because he hates D'Artagnan because he's a dickhead. It's definitely that. And as he should, D'Artagnan is terrible. But he tells the story to D'Artagnan about what happened to his wife. And this is where I was like, come on, Jack Bauer. I I was really (laughs) rooting for you. Yeah, because you're grumpy and surly and acting really well, and you've got that luscious hair. Yeah. And you look so funny in period costume. He really does. So then he tells his story about how the reason he's not flirting with anyone is because he hates the entire concept of love because he once had someone he loved, and the second she revealed a secret to him, she uh, or he found out that she had, I guess, murdered her first husband... He turns her over to the government to be executed. Yeah, because he's just a bit of a dick back then. No, I, I guarantee you that we're supposed to think that he was young and didn't know that she'd been married before and didn't know that she'd kill anyone because she's got a fleur de lis um, tattooed on her, which is a sign that you've been convicted of murder, I think. That's what it's supposed to be. I actually didn't check if that's yeah. accurate, but it is in the novel as well. So. But that's yeah, so that's what it is, and that's how he recognizes, or recognizes that she was the one from the story he'd heard, and you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's not what I want my Athos to be doing. No, it's it's very disappointed that he is not very good at not being terrible. And the next morning they leave. They're all a little bit hungover, but they get attacked by a group of guards. Who are shouting, kill the musketeers. Such a um, creative chant. It's very, it's very creative. It's like a football hooligans shouting, beat each other up. Um, but they, they escape. Uh, the two of them, uh, Aramis and Portos, go off on their own. Athos is left with, um, and I love the scene, Athos is left with D'Artagnan. And there's a group of uh, soldiers attacking them. And it's like a, we can't get out of here situation. And Athos told, tells him to go on on his own. And it's tacitly implied Athos would rather die alone. <laughs> yes, because he hates him. Because he hates him so much. Um, As he which should. Which is something I, I genuinely love about this movie. It's like, yeah, why would anyone want to be friends with D'Artagnan? He's a douche monkey. Yep. So um, uh, we then do cut and we have another lovely scene with Anne, the Queen, and Constance, um, and Richelieu. So... 
they are bathing and Richelieu appears and disgustingly hovers over their naked bodies and mm-hmm. just aggressively hits on the queen, including that at some point, you know, she says something like, aren't you a man of God? And he goes, it is not God to whom I wish to be close. He's apparently, because yeah, not one of those churchy cardinals. He's another church cardinal. <laughs> he's clearly, uh, he's probably got some bees out in the background making honey, a la Friar Tuck, but um, he's definitely not a churchy cardinal it's this he's absolutely horrible it's hard not to enjoy the portrayal here but i mean like what he's doing is clearly problematic but he's never at any point implied to be a decent character or a nice character there are no redeeming factors to reach oh no he's He's just a really like hammy just complete villain yeah and the queen uh at this point and we've already seen a little bit she's clearly in love with louis um, Louis is clearly in love with her but they're not able to communicate this to each other because they're very young and very awkward yeah they're just like very shy and for they were actually I think about 14 when they got married um, mm. and so yeah they're just like too shy to have a conversation with one another yeah and there is a, a, a lovely scene where um, Richelieu is talking to him about his birthday party because that's where he's going to do all of his nefarious businesses and Louis seems really surprised that Anne, his wife, is going to show up to his birthday party. Like, what else would she be doing? (laughs) She's the queen, dude. She's probably required to come. I guarantee you it's written in her marriage license somewhere. And you must attend all state birthdays. Yeah, like, it would be a huge thing if she didn't come. It would probably cause, like, a war between France and Spain. The groups got split up in a thing, uh, in a skirmish. D'Artagnan gets captured and knocked out. Um, he wakes up to find himself in Milady de Winter's bed. Um, Milady de Winter, uh, very uh, attractive and very heavy. Hashtag heave. Um, hashtag heave in this particular thing. Um, she tries to seduce him and he says no. Which is my, maybe the least realistic thing that happens in this it's movie. The least realistic thing in the movie, especially because it's kind of implied... That he says no because he's in love with Constance. Right. Despite the fact that in the previous scene, we just saw him trying to sleep with some barmaids. Right. So why wouldn't he sleep with this random woman? This random, very beautiful, way out of your league woman, dude. Yeah. Um, but hey, How- some men are stupid like yep. that. However, because she is very busy being half naked in this scene, we do get the reveal that we see she has a fleur-de-lis brand. And so now we know that the mysterious Milady de Winter is, in fact, Athos's wife. Athos's wife. And Athos thought that she'd been killed. And she has not been. Mm. So uh, D'Artagnan, she tries to kill him. He stops her and then says, don't kill me. Uh, keep me alive for now because there are other people going to meet me at some point. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's, he's not particularly good at this ruse. And at the, at this stage, it was like, why is she doing this? Mm, but we then get to a point where they show up and uh, they've got a treaty and the three musketeers come to rescue uh, D'Artagnan again. Um, yep. And they really Athos should just leave there, him be at this point. They should just let him die. He's a terribly, terrible person. Hashtag, Hashtag let him let die. Him die. <laughs> and um, Athos is as Sarah's written this in Captain Sarah's super surprised that the woman he thought basically had killed is still alive um, and, uh, and yeah yeah 
So uh, she actually, for some reason, forgives Athos for this, which is ridiculous. She definitely shouldn't. And not only Hmm. does she say she forgives him, she then reveals that Richelieu, in fact, has this whole plan, not only to get this treaty to the Duke of Buckingham, but to assassinate the king at his birthday party. And then throws herself off a cliff, and Athos is then super upset that the woman he'd basically had killed several years before is now, in fact, dead. Yeah, this is a really strange scene. She has just committed treason, but the Three Musketeers, if they save the king, I guarantee you he's going to let them away with whatever they want. Like, God, just say, oh, look, she was actually a double agent all along. Your Majesty. Yeah, if she said, I betrayed Richelieu, and because of that, your life was saved, she definitely would make it. She's definitely going to get a part. Yeah. So her throwing herself off the cliff just seems super bizarre to me. But she does it. Uh, Athos is clearly upset because his beautiful and apparently still loving wife has died for a second time. I could and, be uh, wrong. In the book, I feel like she actually, I guess, like, I don't know, feels remorse for something, and that's why she kills herself, right? Um, yeah, she she might be supposed to be experiencing remorse, but I think it's more in in the movie. It's kind of implied that she knows the jig is up. Yeah. Um. So she's like, "Crap, I've been caught, and this is not going to go well for me." So that's where I think they're going for in this particular movie. Um. And for those of you who are very eagle-eared, you'll have heard Sarah opening uh, <laughs> sour beer there. The sound it of looks podcasting. delicious. And she knows that I don't have any beers in my house as I'm recording this because we obviously don't record together. So we live in different parts of the world, as you can tell from my accent and Sarah's accent. Um, and uh, yeah, now all I want is a sour beer. Thanks, Decker. Now I have a delicious, uh, it's the Founders Rubeus, which is a raspberry beer from Michigan, and I highly recommend it. Maybe they'll sponsor our podcast one day. <laughs> Let's let's get some beer sponsors yeah. and get some free beers. Um, but we cut back to the King's birthday party. Rochefort and Richelieu have arrived, have hired um, a sniper. One of those standard medieval snipers, early modern. Of course, you can't even say it's medieval. Sorry. Like the, you have to be so accurate. Like it's the early modern snipers, as you do. Um, so, so Louis and Anne are talking, and it turns out that it feels like the first time they've had a conversation. Yeah, um, the timing on all of this is a bit off since it's supposed to be 1625 and at this point she's already been pregnant once, um, although Mm -hmm. the pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, unfortunately. So they've definitely talked before in historical reality, but in this movie, this is the first time they've had a conversation as far as we can tell. It's Yeah, it's super weird that like they genuinely do act like, oh, I kind of like you. I kind of like you too. Uh, You've never had this conversation at any stage. You've never been in a marital bed with each other. Because they've been married since the start of the movie, which I think takes place over two weeks. So, because, I mean, they have to travel to Calais and stuff. So, I mean, it didn't happen early or didn't happen in a short amount of time. Right. Um, but the three musketeers and D'Artagnan show up in the crowd. Uh, D'Artagnan sees something shiny and climbs up onto the roof to fight with the sniper. And the rest of the musketeers, the rest of the musketeers fight the Cardinal's guards. Uh, they're all exceptionally good swordsmen. As I said, Aramis is going around killing dudes left, right and centre. Uh, because, as I said, and I, I genuinely appreciate this, he's meant to be the blade master and he's killing dudes a lot. Um, Athos is also very good. Portos is always very good. And it's uh, yeah, it's good. 
It's good. Yeah. Good scene. Aramis is like very chill and throughout all of us. And so, you know, he'll kill somebody and he'll just go, go with God. He's, Meanwhile. He, that's it. He's really, really, it's, he, Charlie Sheen plays this really well. He does. Just killing dudes and blessing them as he does it. So he's one hand in a sword uh, and fighting multiple people and then letting them kill each other by stepping out of the way of the blades and then blessing them with his left hand the whole time, which just, you know, for the record, you shouldn't bless people with your left hand. But that's, you know. It's true. It's just weird. It's just wrong. Um, Athos, on the other hand, is just flat out in berserker mode, which is not something you see often with a dude holding a rapier, but... Um, Berserker rapier fighting is pretty good. He is good very Jack, Jack Bauer in this scene. And I love it. It's fantastic. So, at, yeah, at this point, we uh, we move to Richelieu, who has uh, manages to kind of grab Louis and Anne and, you know, is dragging them into a room and reveals his plan to them, which makes less sense than literally anything I have ever seen before. Uh. So naive. Things couldn't be more perfect if I'd planned them myself. The King of France dies at the hands of his own personal guard. Grief-stricken, terrified, the huddled masses turn for comfort to their devout spiritual leader. Who, ever so humbly, assumes the throne with the Queen by his side. I would rather die. That can be arranged! But first, your reluctant husband will be found pierced through the heart by the sword of a musketeer. The same sword that failed to protect his father. His plan appears to be kill the king Marry the queen, um, assume the power behind the throne, uh, and be the head of the religion in France, while also being effectively the king in France, and perhaps not even just effectively the king, become the actual king. And he does say, and then nothing will stop his rise to the top. You're the king and head of the religious order in a country, dude. Where are you going beyond this? Now, I said this to Sarah is... It's likely he's talking about the Pope, um, the papal seat. But I, I like, how would you even organize to get there? Like? I mean, so my theory, especially because he also apparently is dispensing with clerical celibacy, is that he's going to pull a Henry VIII move and create an independent Church of France, which is basically Catholic without the Pope. Oh, what I thought when you said he's going to pull a Henry VIII move, you meant get grossly fat. He might do that too. And die from eating related disorders and syphilis. It's mostly the syphilis. <laughs> it is shocking how many famous men through history have died from syphilis. But we'll talk about that in another podcast, another episode, because there is a movie coming forward where it is a small plot point. And uh, I think we can do that in our in our what really happened section. We can talk about syphilis. The history of syphilis. We can talk about the history of syphilis and the famous men who died from yep. it. The answer is all of your heroes, guys. If you have a hero from the medieval period, that dude died from syphilis or in a battle. I really hope Henry VIII isn't anyone's hero. I guarantee you there are some people out there who are like, oh yeah, dude got what he wanted. There might be. I don't want to talk to those people. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could be listen. If you're listening to this podcast right now and Henry Diaz is your hero, please stop. Please unsubscribe immediately. The best bit about this uh, entire thing is that Richelieu is explaining his plan to the king, to the queen, and everybody within earshot. Right, because he has this huge group of, you know, his personal guards, and they're just basically regular soldiers. Like, there's no reason to think they would have all known this plan. Like, there's no way, actually, that he would have just told his plan to all of these essentially, like, common soldiers. And they seem deeply unconcerned by this just complete both act of treason and also, you know, betrayal of everything the church stands for. <laughs> He's, it's just, it's stupid. But the musketeers break in and start to fight with the guards. Uh, they corner Richelieu. Um, Aramis goes up to him. Aramis, who was one of Richelieu's students, and he's going to take him into thing. And uh, Richelieu says, "No, I am a cardinal." I he suddenly remembers he's a cardinal. He's like, "I deserve to get a church trial," which I believe is true. Yeah, that's like the most accurate thing about religion in this movie. Um, except possibly that he shoots Aramis in the chest, but Aramis has his little pocket Bible that he uses to seduce women. Yeah. Uh, hanging around his neck, and that's what saves him. So, yeah, good job, uh, Pocket Bible. Yeah. Just for the record, they did do that on a Mythbusters, and books don't stop bullets. Aww. So, please don't think you're going to stop a bullet with your book unless you are reading an incredibly thick book. It's still going to go through. Bible's pretty thick. Um, this he had a little mini Bible. Yeah, that's true. Like a little Gideon Bible. Yeah. Although I suppose it is very dense with the amount of religious uh, imagery you have to work through, and similes and metaphors that you use. True. Uh, religion is hard, guys. <laughs> uh, then we get D'Artagnan dealing with Rochefort. God, I love Rochefort. Um, so good. Who points out to D'Artagnan? Uh, yeah, I killed your dad. It's like yeah, now I, he's I've seen that sword about before. It. I killed your father. That's how it works. It's a it's a pretty good sword fight. Um, Rochefort is definitely a better sword fighter um, or duelist, um, but they have a little bit of a scrap on the stairs. He knocks D'Artagnan onto his ass. It looks like he's about to kill D'Artagnan. Tells him he never had what it takes to be a musketeer, but Constance. Showing up for the last 20 seconds of the movie, having barely done anything except effectively show the slopes of her breasts at some yep. stage in the middle, um, hands him his father's sword, which had been dropped, and he stabs Rochefort through the stomach. And Rochefort then gets to say something cool, because even as he's dying, he gets to be a snarky little bastard. And he's like, I may have been mistaken. <sighs> One thing is certain, you are no musketeer. I might have been mistaken. It's so good. So good. Uh, God, I love Rochefort. Michael Wincott, be in more movies. Yeah, no, he is fantastic. I was really sad he died. I was rooting for him. <laughs> and uh, 
And then what happens from there, Sarah? Um, uh, so then, uh, Athos and Porthos arrive to rescue the king. Um, uh, they do so and they manage to get the king kind of out of the boat that he's in, but they're about to mm-hmm. lose Richelieu until the boatman reveals himself as Aramis, who everyone else had thought was dead. And uh, so he manages to stop Richelieu. Louis punches Richelieu in the face, demonstrating his masculinity. And Anne all of a sudden looks like she maybe wants to make out with him. So that's very exciting for them. Not just make out from like he punches Richelieu. Uh, I, I imagine he's meant to be a sixty-year-old man at this point. Um, in the face, knocks him into the river, and then Anne is like, "Well, hello." You so, managed to knock like, a sixty-year-old churchman into the river. Wow, you are the sexiest King Louis has ever been. Until we do the man the Irish mask or uh, Irish mask, Irish mask. <laughs> um, That's a very different when movie. we get when we get young Leo DiCaprio as. Uh, as King Louis. Not this particular King the Louis. The son of this King, King Louis. Louis. Mm. Um, or, or maybe. Oh, mm. good point. <laughs> God, I can't wait to do that man. We'll mask. It's also an excellent movie. Um, yeah, so the biggest thing that happens after this, apart from the fact that uh, King Louis is about to get it on with Anne and therefore create the next King Louis, um, we get D'Artagnan gets to become a musketeer for some reason. He hasn't really done anything except get captured and cause trouble for the other musketeers but he gets to be there and then at the end the McCann brother shows up uh, with his brothers goes like they want to attack D'Artagnan but then all the musketeers start to help him out because obviously bros before hoes am I right yeah or in the car in the parlance of this movie all for one and one for all all for one and one for all and d'artagnan as an asshole gets to live to see another day and that's how the movie ends with our hero d'artagnan getting away with sleeping with somebody's sister which i imagine was not the done thing back in the day i mean based on their clothing she's presumably a noble woman and sleeping with a noble woman and not who, you know, is presumably unmarried and at least ostensibly a virgin and then not marrying her is a problem. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so we get to the end. That's the end of the movie. And it's very enjoyable, mostly because the villains are awesome. Yes. And Kiefer Sutherland is grumpy and Aramis gets to be really good at swords. Portos is there for comic relief. D'Artagnan is just there because he was a pretty boy. And it was 1993 and Chris O'Donnell was everywhere at the time. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a really enjoyable movie. It was. We move on to our next segment, which is where we talk about what they got right and what they got wrong. So this is called Verit Falso. <laughs> I wasn't going to laugh that time. <laughs> you weren't going to, but then you couldn't stop yourself because <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, Sarah, what did they get uh, Vera in this movie? So the things that they got Vera or correct are uh, certain things I would say about the depiction of the musketeers. Um, so this is basically the kind of fun unit of the Royal Guard. Um, it tends to be more open to members of the lower nobility. And um, people tend to be known for their kind of daring exploits because it's that rather than family background that gets you promoted within the particular context of the musketeers. Um, uh, and that's very much the presentation of them in this movie is as this kind of uh, very sort of daring group of soldiers. Um, uh, Richelieu, we do see then kind of in this movie, um, his guards who are wearing red are the kind of replacements that he has for the musketeers. It is in fact true that he created his own 
unit of musketeers, although he did not, in fact, disband the original one. Um, however, since the musketeers were only created in 1622, and this is 1625, it does seem unlikely that D'Artagnan's father would also be a musketeer. So Richelieu was a cardinal, and he had his own cardinal's guards, right? Now, despite the fact that he was a cardinal, therefore was church and not state, would anyone in his guard troop who backed him over the king, would they have been guilty of treason? No, not at all, because he wasn't fighting against the king, in fact. And he, uh, so he was actually a part of the state. He was actually officially the king's chief minister. I mean, so he had a um, state administrative role as well as a church role. Um, But because he's in fact a very much supporter of the king, it's perfectly legitimate for somebody to, you know, maybe decide to join the Cardinal's guards instead of the Royal Musketeers unit. Excellent. So, yeah, because I was just a little bit confused in the movie about how his guards seem to just completely ignore the fact that the king tells them to do something. And, but I mean, that's just the movie's way of telling you that Richelieu is very close to getting to being what he wants. Right. I mean, that's very unlikely to have happened that, you know, I mean, they're not attacking the king. The king wouldn't have been, you know, giving them orders that they ignored. I'm sure all of them would have obeyed an order from the king if they'd happened to have gotten one. Um, they just would have primarily been the people whose job it was to protect the cardinal and his household. Ah, excellent. Now, did they get the depiction of the king and queen correct? I would say there are things they got right, at least. So um, uh, they're presented in this movie as this very young couple who are a little awkward together and are maybe trying to figure things out. So um, they're one of our in some ways, I would say relatively few um, uh, age-appropriate couples among uh, medieval and early modern royalty. They were the exact same age. They married pretty young, about 14, and seem to have often been relatively distant. So the kind of awkwardness that we see between the two of them is actually pretty accurate. Um, uh, The issue is that, you know, they're kind of glossing over some details. So uh, in practice, in about the 1620s, they had a kind of brief period of making an effort with one another. During that period, she got pregnant but had a miscarriage. And then after, at almost exactly this time, the relationship between the two of them uh, was actually pretty cold, just for various reasons, perhaps having to do with the miscarriage and him being upset about that. Um, uh, Hmm. as well as a little bit after this, the fact that he was at war with her home country of Spain, um, due in part to these, I would say overall poor relations. She did not in fact end up having a child until 1638. So over a decade after this movie. Wow. Um, so her name is Anne of Austria. Yes. Why is her home country Spain? So the Habsburgs rule both Austria and Spain. So you have, because of that, the generally confusing set of affairs that people sometimes get referred to as, say, Anne of Austria, but are actually really from Spain and, you know, grew up primarily in Spain. Um, But so her, I guess, father would have been both the kind of Habsburg emperor who would have ruled Austria and um, also ruled Spain. Hmm, Excellent. Um, When you mentioned... uh, that the relations may have been strained because of a miscarriage. Back in the time period, would this have been something that would have been blamed on the wife? Yeah, pretty much anything that goes wrong in a pregnancy 
or for that matter, the gender of the child is blamed on the woman. Um, Medieval science is not necessarily extremely accurate in a lot of things. Um, And it does generally tend to blame anything that goes wrong in a pregnancy exclusively on the woman. The idea that it could be a man is almost always completely discounted. Hmm. So um, basically what I'm saying is in real life, hashtag let him die to uh, Louis for blaming his wife for something that she had no control. Exactly. (sighs) Now, what did the movie get wrong? And I I know what you're going to say in this because it's something you've said in every single one of the movies we've watched so far. It's going to be religion. (laughs) What in particular did they get wrong in this? All of it. Just all of religion. (laughs) (laughs) So... First of all, the just lack of attention or care that anything that anyone has in terms of religion is especially bizarre because they're literally smack in the middle of basically a century and a half of intense war between Catholics and Protestants because it's the it's Mm -hmm. the early modern period, so we have Protestants now. Um, (laughs) So, and in fact, in France, basically while this movie is going on one of the big things that Louis and Richelieu are involved in is uh, basically putting down uh, Protestant rebellions. Uh, So putting down uh, the Huguenots, the French Protestants, they at some point rebel and are then very brutally repressed and many of their rights are taken away. Um, So that's one of the things that's happening while this is going on. And uh, then as well, um, in terms of religion, Richelieu certainly was a very ambitious man. He might have ultimately, you know, cared to some extent more about politics than about his personal religious beliefs. But he was not, in fact, quite as unchurchy of a cardinal as he seems to be in this movie. Are you telling me that cardinals back then weren't going to be getting married no i don't think a cardinal would have just said yeah this is my evil plot where i just get married he doesn't even say where i break all of my vows and no longer am a cardinal and get married he seems to think he's still going to be a cardinal yeah it just seems really weird that this is how it's going on um it's also weird that your cat is currently trying to eat you um (laughs) she is uh she's Really going after this headphone, these headphones. So she likes things that um, dangle. She does. Uh, and you're a good cat, Carmen. But um, we're trying to record a podcast. Come back and annoy your mama later. <laughs> oh, Sarah, I can't believe you hit her with a tennis racket. <laughs> I did not. She is, a, she is alive and well. <laughs> She's 15. So, she does uh, her own thing. She's fine. <laughs> so Carolyn Richelieu, she's a teenager. Um, but, uh, Carolyn Richelieu, <laughs> she's about the same age. As obviously, Anne. wasn't he's about the same age as Anne. And, but Carolyn Richelieu wasn't going to take. Uh, had his plan honestly doesn't make any sense. He seems to want to end up being pope while also maintaining uh, his role as king and cardinal, and it doesn't have any sense. No. But you said that there might have been a real person who tried to carry out the same plan though. No, so not quite the same plan, but the uh so there's a lot of things going on with Anne. One is that she actually was according to some people having an affair at some point with the Duke of Buckingham, the exact person to whom uh, with whom uh, Richelieu was conspiring to basically surrender France to England. And the other thing is that, so the king has a brother, Gaston, the Duke of Orléans, 
And at some point, if uh, I'm remembering all the details, Gaston was potentially at least conspiring with uh, their mother, Marie de Medici, who I guess decided at some point that Louis was insufficiently pliant and hoped that Gaston would be more so. And so they were potentially conspiring to take over the throne and then he would marry Anne because, of course, she's still of a very important family and all that. Mm. So... As we know, nobody um, plots against the king like Gaston, um, but it didn't succeed, I'm assuming? It did not, um, uh, but as far as I can tell, they basically kind of like swept it all more or less under the rug, if I'm, as I said, remembering all those details correctly. Good. And Richelieu was a real person. He was. He was a real person, but not, in fact, a cartoon villain. He was, in fact, a loyal servant of the king until his death in 1642. Ah, now he seems like the kind of person that we might want to know a little bit more about, Sarah. Yes, and so that's why in our next segment, we will be talking about him. Would you like to share the title of our next segment with our listeners? (laughs) (laughs) Its next section is called Historia et Veritas, which I believe means history and truth. Yes, so uh, the real Cardinal Richelieu. Um. uh, So he was somebody, I would say, who did become a member of the clergy, not because of any particular religious vocation, but because it was something expected of sons in wealthy families. Um, And his family in particular had various reasons that they wanted uh, their son to first become a bishop. As bishop, however, he was actually, I would say, a relatively good one from the perspective, at least, of very much fighting for the church's interests. Um, so he was known as a reformer um, at around this time, as I said, you know, we have the Protestants and therefore we also have the Catholic, the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation as a kind of attempt to combat Protestantism. And he's one of the bishops who was known in particular for um, putting in practice some of the reforms that the Catholic Church was encouraging around this. And he also was responsible in the, um, the Etats General, so basically the French version of Parliament, Um, of arguing for the church's tax-exempt status. So he was very much somebody who was, you know, a pretty good member of the clergy in various ways. So he was a good priest. He was a more churchy cardinal than uh, he is in this movie, (laughs) at least. Um, So he initially gets a position at court as actually an almoner to Anne, but really is rising to power as the confidant of... uh, uh, Louis's mother, Marie de Medici, who I mentioned before. What What is an almoner? Um, so the idea behind what an almoner is, is that you would be the person who would be kind of responsible for distributing alms. So, you know, basically the kind of charitable giving of the royal household. Um, yeah. It ends up taking on a kind of pretty wide variety of functions, um, uh, but in so, so, but in some ways, you know, that's the kind of central element of it. Um, but it's basically a kind of household functionary, and is kind of a good way to get a sort of in with the court. Yeah, as a member so of the he's church. basically he's basically distributing the cash that they're giving out to poor people, and then using that as a, a way to rise to higher power. Right, to poor people's, but also, I mean, in some ways, probably more importantly in terms of the power relationships, he's also giving it, like, to monasteries, which are, of course, in themselves also powerful institutions. Mm. The poor people yeah. are actually not getting that much, to be honest. <laughs> and did he start out in the court? Was he already a cardinal, or was he just a regular priest at that time? Uh, so at this point, he's a bishop. 
Um, so he's a bishop Ooh. of uh, Luzon, which is in west central France. And actually the reason he's a bishop is because his parents are basically like semi-own the rights, various rights over the bishopric. And they want a bishop who's in charge, who they can basically use to kind of siphon off funds for their family. So he has to become the bishop. Um, oh, that's pretty yeah. cool. So, but uh, he does end up eventually be um, being um, involved more in more heavily with the court, and in part at Louis's encouragement, he is in sixteen twenty two named a cardinal, and mm. at this time also becomes an important advisor of the king. Um, he's especially useful in brutally suppressing the revolt of the Huguenots, the French Protestants. Um, he becomes chief minister in 1624 and spends a lot of time basically working hard to centralize power in the hands of the French king. Would, would he have been involved in any of the Huguenot massacres um, um, that had occurred during this period? So the most famous of the Huguenot massacres are actually a little bit earlier. Um, so they're actually yeah. late 16th century. So he wouldn't have been involved in those. Um, uh, but as I said, there is definitely at least like some amount of brutal, of brutal repression of the Huguenots that's happening at around this time that he's involved in. And he's also involved in basically stripping them of as many of their rights as possible. Excellent. I mean, I, I said excellent. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be stripping anyone of the rights. So Catholic. Um, <laughs> it, it's my Catholic upbringing coming back to haunt me, uh, on the, in a public forum on the podcast. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to find out that. He he effectively was a more churchy cardinal at this point. Um, so stopping them from getting back to power, the Huguenots from getting any sort of a base after they were effectively wiped out, or not wiped out, but had been damaged badly in the in the uh, early or the later sixteenth century. It's I I wouldn't have known this at all. This is fascinating. Yeah. He was, however, ultimately, I would say, more interested in encouraging the power of France than he was in purely religious concerns. Um, so not that he wasn't fairly churchy, but ultimately what he really cares about is France being in charge. And the biggest threat to France being in charge in Europe is not the Protestants. It's actually the Habsburgs in Spain. Hmm. Um, so, you know. He ends up ultimately in the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648, um, eventually openly allying with Protestant forces. And it is, in fact, because of his decision to do this that the Habsburgs ended up being weakened as a European power, and France very much was the country that entered that power vacuum. So because of his weakening of the Spanish... Um, it allowed France, so effectively he he might not have been planning it that way, but he ended up making France a stronger country. Yeah, and the other thing I would say that he did is, uh, so he's also very involved internally in encouraging and strengthening the power of the French king, and because of that was very unpopular with the local feudal nobility. And mm. he very much also is uh, paving the way for the um, absolutist government of Louis XIV. Excellent. So this is a uh... See, this is stuff I would never know. I've only ever known recently from the Dumas novels or from the adaptations. And it's fascinating to find that this was going on in the background in real life. Yeah, and I think the uh, this is really interesting as 
an adaptation of the Dumas novel as well, where Richelieu is much less of a cartoon villain and is much less kind of mm. openly disloyal, although he's certainly pursuing his own ends. Um, uh, but yeah, but in this, they very much kind of decided that he's just going to be really a kind of open traitor to the crown. Whereas in fact, in part, because he is a cardinal and a man of the church and not a member of the royal family, I doubt it would have ever occurred to him to try and, you know, take over the throne as opposed to being quite happy being the man behind the throne and very much strengthening the throne in that capacity. Yeah. So they got a lot about his character correct, but also then managed to not be... it, it Like, as great as the representation in the movie is because he's played by Tim Curry, this version of Richelieu that you're telling me about is way more interesting and devious and let's just say competent than the one depicted in the movie so I kind of want to find out more about him yeah Hmm. but speaking of different versions of things we get to uh, our next segment which is where Sarah and I try to come up with an alternative version of this particular movie and in this case we're going to try and come up with an alternative version of a movie called the three musketeers and we call this section fabula nostra uh sarah what is your version of the three musketeers so i'm gonna be really boring and suggest one that actually is much more closely just based on the book the three musketeers by the wonderful 19th century writer alexandre dumas um, for this movie, I think that it would be really great to see a Cardinal Richelieu who is much closer to reality. And I think Jeremy Irons would do a great job as a figure who is an antagonist while not being like a supervillain. Mm. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and who would you have play D'Artagnan? So I would like to really embrace the fact that I think D'Artagnan is a jerk and so i want to have one of our current like jerk white boys um who are so popular (laughs) these days and all look the same play him so uh the one i went for was our current young han solo alden ehrenreich yeah yeah because we'd be able to pick him out as a crowd um what about Louis? Who did you cast as Louis? And then I decided to have the even more uh, kind of ridiculous young white boy of Dane DeHaan, uh, mostly because I think <laughs> Dane DeHaan has less charisma than almost any other actor I've seen. And I think that is actually very true to what we know about Louis is that he's really not the most charismatic individual. Um, and in turn, because Anne in the original novel is not necessarily a hundred percent positive figure. She's actually potentially, I think she's having an affair with the Duke of Buckingham in the novel, uh, which may or may not have been true in real. It probably wasn't true in real life, at least at this point, but it was true in the novel. Um, I think it would be fun to have her be played by Aubrey Plaza, who would sort of act circles around Dane DeHaan. (laughs) Definitely. Um, And then I noticed you've got two of my favorite actors in the world cast as Athos and Aramis. Um, Athos played by Rufus Sewell uh, Rufus by the way just unbelievable I love Rufus love him, Sewell love Rufus Sewell should be in everything um, he's in our next movie uh, so I'm looking forward yeah. to that um, and then Aramis played by uh, the one and only John Hamm yeah after having seen Baby Driver I decided John Hamm should mostly play villains 
Um, but I will make an exception, and I think he can also play a, like, slightly hammy, snarky Aramis, and that that will work. And Milady is being played by his terrible, terrible actress wife, January yes. Jones. which, I don't know, I was trying to do, like, a kind of who's our current, like, icy blonde, and that's who I came ah, up with. yes. So. Yeah, actually, I, I think she'd actually be a, a good fit for that. Um... I, I right, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like I the the actual book itself is brilliant. Um there are closer adaptations to it. But yeah, I, I, I I'm fully on board with this. Now I this is the first time uh that we're gonna have done this on the podcast. Um and you said you're gonna feel like a cheat or boring because you would want something which is close to the book. I'm only gonna my version of Three Musketeers from 1993 is identical mm. to the version we just watched. Okay. Except I'm going to change the casting of two actors. Go for it. I like Oliver Platt. I mean, my name's Oliver. He's an Oliver. Like, we kind of get on, right? Special but bond. I'm going to... It's a special bond there. I am going to replace him... Uh, Oliver Platt, with a much better actor. Um, sorry, I'm just uh, replying to my brother, who's just after getting on his plane. <laughs> so I'll cut this out. Because he's just after getting on the plane. Oh, right. he, I'll have to... Re- yeah, so that he'll know... Um, so I don't know you're coming. He'll know I'm coming. Um, right. <clears throat> so I'm going to replace Portos. And the actor who played Portos is Oliver Platt and he's a nice man or whatever he's a good actor but I'm going to replace him with Philip Seymour Hoffman oh who and it's 1993 so you can do that 1993 he's young he's still alive um, he's still a wonderful wonderful actor and I think he could ham up that role so well he really could in the way that in the way that Oliver Platt didn't manage to quite make it and then I'm going to replace D'Artagnan right thank god now it's 1993 D'Artagnan is a young man, he's making his way in the world, and he needs to exhibit some form of charisma, because the idea is that everybody is drawn to him, and that's what happens in the book, is even though he's naive, people like him, and I don't think anybody likes Chris O'Donnell, Um, he's just there, he's bland, and he's a terrible actress, or actor, so I'm trying to think of who in 1993 could fill this role and again it's a copper because he's just a beautiful beautiful man but i'm going to cast a young brad pitt oh as d'artagnan in this movie um he's slightly younger than the other uh, actors which right. would make sense because they should be in their late 20s he should be in his um, late teens so he's about 10 years younger than charlie sheen he's about 10 years younger than Christopher Sullivan, maybe a little bit more and i think it's perfect casting i would keep literally everybody else exactly the way they are all right and I think we've just got two more charismatic character actors or actors in the, the roles that they're playing. And I genuinely think that this would elevate it to a, a much higher standard. I think that would absolutely work. I, I am fully on board. I will say one thing. We will be doing The Man in the Iron Mask at another stage. And I would gladly cast Gabriel Byrne as 
D'Artagnan because I think he's brilliant. Yeah. In the Man in the Iron Mask, he's just a little bit old. Yeah. To play the D'Artagnan in 1993. It's true. But, a young um, Gabriel Byrne yes. would have been good. A young Gabriel Byrne would have been very, very good and super charismatic as well because he used to be on Irish TV back in those days when I was a little kid. And young Gabriel Byrne was, was smoldering. Yeah. Um, he would really, really, really grab your attention. But that's what I would do. I would pretty much make the exact same movie, heaving bosoms and all, and it would be super enjoyable, and I think it would be mega successful. Which leads us on to our last section, where we give it a mark out of five. And uh, this is called Estimatio, where we give it a grade based on how much we liked it. Sarah, what mark out of five would you give this movie? So, I am going to go higher than I have thus far gone. And I'm going to give this movie a four out of five. A four out of five. So I genuinely really, really enjoyed this movie. It's a lot of fun to watch. The reason Mm -hmm. it's not quite going to get a five is, first of all, so it does pass the If Decker test. Uh, There are two named women who don't die, Anne and Constance. However, I would say the depiction of women in general is not amazing, with the kind of exception of Milady, the women don't really have any agency in a way that is a bit frustrating. Um, I also have issues ultimately with the level of accuracy that, uh, in particular, the kind of lack of attention <laughs> to religion and religious identity as being something that matters as well in particular as uh, the kind of transformation of Cardinal Richelieu, as fun as it is, and as much as I adore Tim Curry in this role, given that part of this podcast uh, is about historical accuracy, I cannot in good conscience quite give it a five, given what they turned Cardinal Richelieu into in this movie. No, that makes perfect sense. Hmm. Um, I have a soft spot for this movie. And historical movies um, from the 90s tend, uh, like a lot of movies, they they tend to fall into two brackets. They're either the most po-faced and boring, boring pieces of cinema where you have to sit and watch for several hours as Columbus conquers America and it's 1492 and we're all going to go to sleep because everything is so serious. <laughs> or it falls into the category of this one where they go, oh yeah, some buckle's going to get swashed. Some people going to swagger around wearing their high top boots and are effectively wearing leggings that have all got cod pieces in them. <laughs> I, for, I'm fairly certain. They're all wearing tabards. They've all got the most filigreed little swords. Um, I said to Sarah beforehand, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this really much. I love this movie so much that I bought two swords. Two? That, uh, one of them, which, which, yeah, I have two of them. I have D'Artagnan's uh, dad's sword, mm-hmm. the gold one, and I've got a regular musketeer sword, the silver one. And um, yeah, uh, the, the, it was like literally with my... I think two of my first paychecks when I started working, <laughs> I bought swords in this movie. I do have a collection because I am a nerd. Um, I don't let them anywhere near my son because they're swords and they're stupid. It's all right. But, that's um, basic yeah. parental responsibility. 
but this movie has stayed with me so long. I be, even before we watched it, myself and Sarah, I was like, Sarah, you have to watch the, the Three Musketeers. It's just it's fun. Um, even before we watched it, I could have talked through every scene in order for this movie, <laughs> just because I've seen it so many times. I can't give it a five out of five because Chris O'Donnell is shocking in the main role. So um, the fee, even nineteen ninety three Ollie, and as I said, I was twelve, going thirteen. <coughs> When I first saw this, even he wouldn't wouldn't have been happy with how little the women have agency or the female characters have agency in it. Um, I do want to give it an extra song or an extra uh, credit because the song is amazing. <laughs> um, Sting, Rod Stewart, and Brian Adams. Never thought I'd hear the three of them singing together. They're like the three but, musketeers but of music. Job. The three musketeers of music. But I am also going to give it a four out of five. I really love the movie. It's it's got its issues and this a slightly weird pacing thing that goes on during the center of it. But I think that was also common to movies like this at the time. I mean, we're going to cover Robin Hood Prince Steve's, we're going to cover um The Man in the Iron Mask, we're going to cover another version of the Three Musketeers from around about this time eventually. And they all seem to have this saggy center where we have to get like an emotional relationship between the characters. And that's not what this movie should be about. It should be about, yeah, dudes, let's go do our stuff. It's really a movie um, about swords. It's, it's a movie about swords. And the sword play in it is good. So yeah, four to five. I, I really enjoyed the movie. All right. We are in agreement about this being a really fun movie that we would actually recommend. Mm-hmm. I, d- I genuinely think all of our listeners should uh, should track it down and watch it. Sir, would you like to tell people how they can get in contact with us? I would love to. So first of all, if you have been enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform. And also, if you have any feedback for us, we encourage you to get in touch with us via email. Our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, where I will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the Middle Ages. And I will never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah Itch Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ollie, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend, Emily. Um, we are two people who've never met and we record interviews with people that we only know from the internet so we basically pick one of our friends that we know from various facebook groups we give them a skype call and we just talk to them about you know themselves and it turns out that everybody is interesting like people say oh i can't talk about anything there's nothing there's nothing interesting about me and then literally every single episode you'll find at least one or two nuggets of pure gold where people are telling you stories and it just turns out that they've they've lived pretty much amazing lives Every single person at some stage has done something extraordinary to the rest of us. It might feel ordinary to you, but it's extraordinary to people who aren't living through it at the time. Um, that's how myself and Sarah met. Mm-hmm. Uh, hers is a very good episode, and it's uh, it's really great. I recommend it to everybody. So it's called Best Acquaintances, and you can find us in the Best Acquaintances podcast group on Facebook as well, which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff. Absolutely. It's good. Sarah, so... 
now that we've done all that where we talked about how you can get in contact with us what movie are we doing next week Ollie? uh well sir i think next week we should change tack okay we just had a brisk 93 minute movie which was full of swashbuckling antics and featured um three musketeers and it featured French people and somebody from Spain who thinks they're from Austria. We should change tack altogether. Uh, I think we should find one which drags incredibly badly and features a main character and, well, two main characters who are the title characters who are also very boring. We should also make sure we get some handsome, handsome Rufus Sewell in there. So I think we should do Tristan and Isolde. Funnily enough, even though we did not discuss this, that's literally exactly the movie I was going to suggest we do next week. <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right, Sarah, uh, absolutely a pleasure to record you. Even if uh, people won't be able to hear this when I edit it together, we had a huge uh, internet issue in the center of this um, so if you were where I couldn't hear yeah. Sarah and she couldn't hear me. Yeah, but uh, you wouldn't be able to notice <clears throat> because I live edited around it. But um, yeah, even though we do that, it's an absolute pleasure recording with you. And I look forward to chatting to you again next you week. You too. I'm glad our listeners will not have that giant black spot in the middle. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> I look forward to recording with you again next week. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Bye. Bye. love inside I swear I'll always be strong Then there's a reason why